0: All right. Well, I am joined by Professor Ryan Lake, uh, teaches at Philosophy at Perimeter College, and I am supposed to be joined by Mark Warren who's a philosophy professor at uh, Damon College uh, in uh, upstate New York. Uh, But... Uh, he is having technical difficulties. Um, with any luck, this one at least he can fix, and you know we, he will be joining us uh, in a minute or two. But uh, meanwhile, uh, I'm here with Ryan.
1: Hey, man. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah. No. Um, so I, I will tell you what uh, Ryan Lake is uh, has mastered the use of the telephone. Uh, yeah. We're all, we're all very proud of him for that. It's one of my Um,
1: many skills. I can also use a television, uh, a microwave, uh, lots of things.
0: Yeah. Do you remember, uh, remember there was an old X-Files episode where there was a man who like came down from the mountains and was using like folk magic to curse people. And there was an episode where he (laughs) sees the microwave for the first time. He's like, a microwave. They say it's like God's own
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm past that level of huh. technological proficiency.
0: Nice, nice. Well, perhaps yeah. someday, uh, perhaps someday our friend Mark will uh, will rise to uh, to the same level. Oh, hey, hey. Let's there see.
2: He... Can y'all hear me?
0: Yes, yes. We
2: hear sorry, sorry for the delay. <laughs> I had to download it on another device.
1: All right, all right. Welcome to the party.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I just figured that um, you know that this was the first time he'd ever used a telephone, and so um, (laughs) you know you you were just. I
2: didn't didn't realize you could cause changes in what's on the screen by touching the screen physically. That's that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's incredible. It's Mm -hmm. a huge leap past television technology. Yeah, that explains explains
2: why why my iPad has been so useless to me up until (laughs) then. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you push that power button and then nothing happens. i just (laughs) stare at it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) what are you supposed to do?
2: This thing sucks. (laughs) Uh, uh,
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, if people want to uh, want to call in and ask uh, ask questions, we had several good ones uh, yesterday. So, what um,
2: what philosophical questions were people
1: uh, asking? About? Uh, and let's, let's see. We were talking about Sam Harris a bit. A oh, caller,
2: awesome.
1: A caller took us to task for our uh, "Sam Harris is wrong about everything" episode, but it actually led to a good good discussion. Um, what else? I'm trying to remember what else we were getting.
0: Uh, there was the thing about the value of truth.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. We had a truth pragmatist of some sort that left, led to a good discussion. Like a Jordan uh, Peterson type of pragmatist, or like a like um, first he, kind of he, pragmatist. he, yeah. He, he didn't go that far with it, but just yeah. He, he wanted to argue that truth is just uh, whatever is useful or good enough. We don't need to get to to uh, like absolute truth. So that led to a fun discussion. Yeah,
0: let's see. Let's see. Yeah, um, and yeah, there was a lot of. Although, actually, I guess that one was a little bit unclear to me. How much what the caller was saying was that um, was that as a matter of fact, most people don't care what's descriptively true as opposed to what's close enough to be useful or whether he was arguing that maybe they do but they shouldn't.
1: Uh, it's, it seemed to be more the former, I think. Although um, I guess there was a little bit of the latter, too. Like I guess he acknowledged that a few of us nerds care about the latter and we shouldn't. So I think there was a little bit of the latter in there, too.
0: Yeah, because I—I mean, I think if he, I think in some ways it'd be more interesting argument if he was just going to make the um, the shouldn't claim because uh, because I I think that you know one of the things you pointed out in that discussion is that clearly lots of people do right yeah Uh, you know popular science books you know get like sell you know millions and millions of copies. And that's not because people think that Ryan Green or Stephen Hawking is going to tell them something that's going to be useful in some way.
2: Yeah, the normative question seems like the more debatable one. Descriptively, mm-hmm. of course we do. It's, or at least people say they do. And you, you've got to, the, the, the onus is on you to argue that they're self-deceived or just lying or whatever. But mm-hmm. whether or not we should believe in truth absent its, uh, its pragmatic qualities, that's an interesting question.
1: That's an
0: mm-hmm. interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, so I, I should say, by the way, since since yesterday we we went over a little bit of uh, my and Ryan's and Jen's uh, interests. Uh, that um, that uh, Mark uh, actually Ryan, what's 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 the best insulting way to sum up what uh, what Mark's academic interests are?
1: Oh, uh, um, that, uh, that morality is all about either booze or yays, I guess. Booze is a B-O-O-Z. Yeah. 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 Boo, murder, yay, charity. No,
2: no. You said booze. You said liquor, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Booze. Booze. Yes. (laughs) Booze leads to murder. (laughs) And then, uh.
2: Um, I, my, my field is um, my field is metaethics. Um, I am um, I am aligned with uh, a view called quasi-realism, which historically is connected to an old-fashioned view, uh, A.J. Ayer's view of motivism, which is often known as the "boo-hooray" theory of ethics. That is, it's the idea that ethical claims. Don't, aren't truth? Aren't truth accessible? They don't. They don't try to get to the truth. When I say murder is bad, I'm not making something a claim that's factual. What I'm doing is saying, "Boo, murder." Um, that is my lineage, but I, I, I actually do think that they're they're ethical facts and so on and so forth. That's what the quasi realist thing does. But um, Ben and Ryan can't accept that. Uh, all they can do is
1: cast aspersions <laughs> on my character, <laughs> and you say boo to that. And I,
0: just... I will. I will just register this that uh, I think that somehow over the years, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of out of habit. I'm, I'm sort of mocking the view in, in the ways that I always have, but um, but I, I think I've gotten much more sympathetic over the years to actually something much closer to the, uh, the original, you know, version of the, uh, of, of the view, like the idea that what we're actually, you know, what we're fundamentally doing, uh, when we, um, when we make moral judgments as we're expressing attitudes. Uh, yeah. You, you,
2: know, you um, you've actually got more anti-realist than me on this, right? You, you read it was re- your reading of Hume that did this. Is that, am I tracking that right?
1: yeah or was I mean, it just I... your reaction to sam harris <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well I, i'm i really trying hard to apply the principle that he's wrong about everything it gets a little tricky because sometimes he'll say like what day it is and stuff like that but um uh no i i you know i mean i think sam harris is at maximum wrong about like you know ninety ninety five percent of things but uh but yeah, I, I don't know. I think thinking about what's wrong with the Harris view probably did do a little bit of it. I think thinking a lot, reading and thinking a lot more about Hume probably did a little bit of it. Uh, I, I should say, like I, I think that you know where, I mean. You know, you spend more time thinking about this in a kind of precise way than I do, but like I think I
2: did. I have tenure now, so that's over. Okay, okay, okay. Good, good.
0: So we're <laughs> so we're we're getting closer to being on an even playing field here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I I think that, but I, I don't know. I, I think that I might be. I think I actually might be more sympathetic to something like, um, you know, the the Simon Blackburn view, or like what it you know or like what Blackburn's original view was. I don't know how it might've evolved over time. Right? But like, I mean, yeah, clearly uh, any view that doesn't let us say that like, um, you know, moral statements can be true and false. We can reason about them and all that stuff is obviously a bad view. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there is something about like actual, actual expressivism, you know, the idea that they, that we're, uh, that what's really at stake here are, are, attitudes towards things and trying to somehow make those internally consistent like that. There's something about that that feels very right to me.
2: Yeah. All right. So, so, I mean, let's, I I guess, I guess for posterity's sake, we we can, um, you know, the the, the, there's this old debate in, in philosophy about whether or not ethical statements are actually factual statements where we try to describe the world, or, or whether or not uh, they express our beliefs, mm-hmm. or if they or if they serve some other function. And, you know Maybe, maybe they express uh, what the philosopher would call a non-cognitive state. You know, a cognitive yeah. state is a belief, a non-cognitive state is something like an emotion or a desire. And on one side of, of this uh, debate, you've got people like uh, A.J. Ayer or mm-hmm. sort of uh, early versions of, of this guy, of Simon Blackburn, Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so I I come from the non-cognitive tradition, but one of the big problems for the non-cognitive tradition is it just doesn't seem like, it really feels like our moral claims do express beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. When I say, um, I think that slavery was wrong. I'm not just, I'm not just emoting something I'm actually describing, I mean it's a weird roundabout way of saying it but it feels like I'm describing some feature of the moral world.
0: Well, I mean at this point I don't know I don't know what you're talking about the uh, yeah, is, right. is 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 this moral world, you know, is there like like uh you know how, how do I access this moral world, you know? Is 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 this yeah. uh, is this in a different dimension? I mean what 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 are we talking about here, Mark?
2: You have to become a Christian. Okay. <laughs> No, I, I, I mean that's. I mean you know, obviously I'm also very skeptical about this way of talking, but it's, I, 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 and I think it comes from doing too much moral philosophy. Mm. I think I think what happens is people want to say, look, slavery was wrong, and that mm. it's true, goddammit, it, it's true that slavery was wrong. It would uh-huh. be, wrong, it would have been wrong even if we had never realized that it was wrong. Slavery's wrongness did not consist in the fact that we came to believe it was wrong, or that we started to feel bad about slavery. Slavery's wrongness was, you know, part of the nature of slavery. It's just it's inherently wrong. I, and like I think you can say all that stuff without without being overly metaphysical. That's not that's not a. I don't think anything that I just said was um, too hard to parse. I think it's stuff that like most people would want to commit to. But it's a short hop and a skip from that stance to, well, so then slavery is, the, the wrongness of slavery is a pro- you know wrongness is a proper moral property that slavery has. And that's when philosophers start to get, uh, I think, sort of confused.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I will just say before we go to the collar, like, um, I mean, I, I, I think probably my biggest change on this over the years has been that, like. I'm less and less bothered about whether we can make some of those statements or not. Like, I, I and and I think that it it just um, you know because I don't know. I mean, I think the I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with an intuitive picture whereby what we're you know like what we're really talking about is I really care very much about having a world where nobody is treated this way. And, uh, and I'm, I'm like deeply committed to that. And, you know, if you're, you know, given that I, I trust that other people's commitments like overlap enough with mine that there's, that there's room for, that it'll be productive to, to reason, you know, to, to reason about this stuff to, you know, to have, because I could appeal to like, even if somebody, you know, I don't know. I mean, even if we were in a hell world where like, there are lots of people running around who disagreed with me about slavery, Um, you know, that there might be other like deeper value commitments they have that I can show that are inconsistent with that. But, you know, if I can't, I mean, ultimately those are the breaks and then we just have to like fight about it. Um, But, and, and, you know, and I'm, I'm I'm also comfortable saying that I care enough about it to be willing to, you know, use violence and, you know, and and all that stuff. Uh, But none of that really seems to hinge on whether we can make sense of talking about moral properties or, you know, whether there's, you know, whether there's some sense in which it would have been wrong if nobody had, you know, had noticed it or or, or, or anything like that. I mean, I, I think that, um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm increasingly unsure what's at stake in all of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm friendly to the idea that um, the more abstract th- these conversations get, the less likely they're they're going to be able to get hooks into like our, our motivation. They're not going to, they're not going to, they're, they're less and less likely to do the thing that moral language is supposed to do, which is like to get us to behave, to get us to you know coordinate our behavior and be nice to each other and all that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, when we talk about moral properties, I can, I can kind of understand it. But not, when you say things like it, the idea that slavery would be wrong, even if people didn't think it was wrong, I think that's pretty basic. I think we do want a moral theory, a meta ethical idea that captures that intuition.
0: Yeah, I I think if you say I guess the question is what the intuition is, right? Is it is it just that uh, you know, we have a we have a really bad reaction to saying that slavery is only wrong because people think it's wrong. Uh and there might be I mean, again, I don't know I don't know how precisely I would translate these intuitions into a schmancy, you know, philosophical theory i'm just a simple man but uh but, but i think that uh, but uh but i, I you know but i'm but like given my increasing comfort with say that look i mean moral moral language moral reasoning right i mean what we're doing is we're trying to you know bring our values into some kind of reflective equilibrium that's that's what's that's that's what the project is um like i guess it sort of makes sense to me that we have this visceral discomfort with saying that slavery is only wrong because people think it's wrong because that sort of suggests, I mean, just to use the, like, super simplistic AJ or kind of language that, like, you know, look, I'm only booing slavery right now because, like, people are generally booing it. If people generally started yaying it, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to yay. Like, you know, and and that would be like a morally, that would be a morally grotesque thing to say. I I, I think it's, it it feels like maybe part of what's really being signaled by saying slavery would be wrong, even if no one thought it would be wrong, would be that like, look, even if every single other person in the world thought that slavery was wrong, I would still be deeply committed to doing whatever I could to undermine it. And, you know, I'd I'd be willing to like kill slave owners in order to free whatever slaves I could and, you know, and, and so on, which... You know, which would be the correct attitude, but I, I I don't know how much, I don't know how much that's bound up with the sort of question about the metaphysical status of wrongness. Wait, did you
2: just yeah,
1: say that I, would
0: be I, the I, correct attitude? Yeah, that's uh, the one I would get. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
1: Um I, I think I think we want to say something a little stronger than that. Like I, I think when we viscerally, viscerally react to the idea that slavery would only be wrong because people say it's wrong. It's it's not just that we have a strong commitment to saying it's wrong, but we want to be able to say that if everyone else suddenly started cheering for slavery, that they would be making some kind of mistake. Yeah, um, and, and I think we can say that maybe and still be quasi realist or emotivist. Like, in it, it, kind of going back to what you were saying, Ben, like the mistake could be that you know anyone who's a human being and has some just basic human values is not is not a sociopath um, would have to be. Uh, would have to have some kind of internal contradiction to be then cheering slavery. They'd have to be missing out on something. Yeah,
0: I, I think I think that's I think that's plausible. Although, and, and, and I mean, actually, I'll, I'll I'll say something stronger than that. I think that's like almost certainly true. But uh, but but I guess I, I also I also wonder sometimes what like about the extent to which philosophers sometimes want to emphasize that because right? it seems like the most important thing to say. About people who were pro-slavery would not actually be that they are irrational; it would be that they were evil.
2: Yeah, I mean that's actually what I mean. That's yeah. For for, for what it's worth, the arch quasi-realist Simon Blackburn, his take on on the, he, he he wants to say it's a mistake <clears throat> to say that it would be a mistake to, to think slavery is, is okay, even if and it would be a mistake, even if you did so with a perfectly coherent rational. Worldview, it would still be a mistake, and the mistake would consist in the fact that you think slavery is okay, but it's not. <laughs> like that's that's all there is to it. For for um, for Blackburn. he's very suspicious of the idea that we can use pure rationality to get us to bedrock moral truths. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't mean to suggest that, but I just mean that like um, that there would be some just. If you were a human who was not a total sociopath, sure, um, you would have some some kind of basic values, and you recognize some basic values that would just be uh, incommensurate with endorsing slavery. Yeah,
2: Um, yeah. I I, I know that we've got a. I know you've got a caller waiting, but um, just I just want to throw this out there. Maybe it's something we can return to. I think there's an interesting, an interesting question that's both kind of a personal and philosophical question, uh, um, which is uh, it. Ben, in as much as you are given towards an anti-realist position about morality, yeah. how, to what degree does that? If you think that there, you know, that slavery is wrong, but you're suspicious about people who say that it's a fact that slavery is wrong, or, or maybe even doubly suspicious of somebody who says it's an objective fact that slavery is wrong. If you're, if, if that's your position, I, I wonder, is just psychologically, that does it sort of undermine some of your moral commitments to have that kind of anti-realist position?
0: Okay. So first of all, I mean, I wouldn't actually be suspicious of people who say anything like this. I would just be, I would just wonder how much was actually at stake and whether we put things like that. Right. Like in other words, like, uh, and, and I think this is what I'm saying about how I think my biggest shift on this issue actually hasn't been intellectual. It's been like, emotional it's you know it's the sort of disentangling of those two things that you were just talking about because like it increasingly feels to me like you know whether it's precisely right to use these phrases about objective fact or property or whatever doesn't really seem to have much of anything to do with the moral passion about it like those those seem those those feel very very separate to me again i think as a matter of fact ryan is correct it's like very difficult to imagine a human being who wasn't you know a complete sociopath maybe even more of a complete sociopath than any that actually exists uh who who didn't who wouldn't be incoherent in some way in their value system if they didn't agree that slavery was wrong i think that's pr- almost certainly true but again like it, it just to me there seems to be increasingly it feels less morally or emotionally important to me that this hypothetical person who you know who did have an internally coherent you know value system that didn't include slavery was wrong like that they that that person would be making like a epistemic mistake of some kind right like i don't really care that much about that yeah i just i I think that's right i just care that that would be a very evil person and like if they were in any position to enact their beliefs we should like kill them you know like that that's that's what i care Um, about not like you know not like whether they're making a rational mistake
2: I think that's right. Morally, morally speaking, kindness is more important than consistency, right? I'd much rather be a fundamentally like kind person with all sorts of with all sorts of uh, internal contradictions in the way that I see the world and think about ethical issues. I mean, that's we just to say, you know, that yeah. would be pe- a lot of people than to be an all a, a completely consistent or as close as possible consistent psycho- sociopath. You know, one's obvious
0: yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, it seems like the reason we care about moral consistency is uh, because we think that if if you're inconsistent, then you believe, you know, then like you believe you're letting in stuff that's morally bad because because uh, on further reflection, you'd realize that you know some of what you want is actually morally bad because. Given some, you know, deeper value that that you know it conflicts with or whatever, but like that's a, you know, but yeah, it'd be, be it's it'd be much better <laughs> to be an inconsistent mixture of being you know morally bad and morally good, but mostly morally good, than to be a completely coherent morally bad person who just yeah. like has like the whatever like the the equivalent of like constant you know goodwill. I remember this was a thing our friend Frederick introduced. You know, so, you know they just have the consistent evil will. All right, let's get us here for. Oh, sorry, what do you say?
1: No, I just want to add one thing. One, one reason why it might be good to care. I mean, I agree that kindness is more important than consistency, but one reason we might particularly care about consistency is it does um, when, when the moral mistakes are coming from uh, incoherence in one's values that opens the path to making progress by discourse and not just by killing the evil. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, I,
2: that, I think that's, that's. I mean, like, so since we're, I'm sorry that we keep putting off the collar, but I mean, I, I should speak a little bit more on this. This is like specific, something that I I do talk a lot about in my work that I think, like, what the question about consistency, how do we think about the call for consistency in, in metaethics if you're like a quasi-realist, if you have this sort of fundamental approach to morality that I do, and... Here's here's the thing. If you're if you come from this kind of hardcore cognitivist moral realist tradition where you think that moral facts are just like scientific facts that are facts that are out there in the world waiting to be described, then the call for consistency in ethics is the same as the call for consistency in science. That is, that inconsistent things can't be true, barring dialetheism or, or whatnot. Um, and so, in, in as much as we want to maximize the true beliefs that we have, we should try our best to be coherent and consistent in our worldview, both with scientific facts and with moral facts. And I think that that's just not a very plausible view about how what consistency is doing in ethical discourse. I think that it's closer to something like what Ryan just said, that we we we, we look for calls for consistency partially because the demand for consistency is a precondition for meaningful reasoning together, right? Like, if, if I'm not, if I don't try to be consistent or if i don't hold you to norms for consistency in our conversation if i don't you know try to make sure that what you just said is consistent with the thing that you said 10 minutes ago then it's really hard for us to actually reason together and if we can't reason together for moral conclusions then moral moral language just becomes a lot less useful
0: yeah i i think i think it's better to persuade people to kill them if possible uh michael what's a good...
3: Thanks for having the conversation today. Um, I am, uh, you know, my academic uh, background of any kind has not intersected much with philosophy at all. Just did basically, you know, a history major and uh, and then law, and so both of those are very like, uh, you know, they intersect, I guess, with like philosophy, but they kind of have this interaction with, you know, like. Um, you know, either primary sources or or legal, you know, fact patterns and things like that. And so um, my question was actually to see if uh, you guys would elaborate a little bit on a topic that came up when Ben was talking to Lillian um, uh, Chachurchia, I believe is how she pronounces yes. it. Um,
0: yes, Chachurchia.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, you guys were talking about um, G.A. Cohen and um in the issue of functionalism and 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 re- you were critiquing functionalist arguments and my ears kind of perked up because I, I i i a lot of times when i encounter those kinds of arguments i i thought they kind of make sense from a mm-hmm. you know kind of a practical perspective i just kind of wanted to hear you guys riff a little bit more about you know what the what the problem and limitations problems and limitations are of functionalist arguments.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and, and it's important to be careful here. Cause I think when you talk about functionalism or functional explanations and say that functional explanations is true, is not necessarily or sometimes true? Isn't necessarily the same thing as endorsing some of the many things people may mean by functionalism, but, uh, but for anybody who just has no idea what we're talking about, right, because, like, again, in very in different contexts, these words can be really, really different things. Uh, roughly the issue is whether, like, when its whether if you say, oh, such and such happens because it serves some function for a system, whether that, like, counts as an explanation in the first place, uh, whether that's sometimes true, whether, like, under what circumstances it's rational to believe it. So, um, and this is actually really good timing because I'm teaching this class at the uh, Michael Alberts thing, the School for Social and Cultural Change, uh, where we're reading G.A. Cohen's book, Karl Marx's Theory of History and Defense. And right now we're right in the middle of his defense of his use of, of functional explanations. And uh, and so, uh, so the, the issue is stuff like, when like uh you know marx or later marxists say things like you know capitalism uh replaced feudalism because feudalism had become a fetter on the development of the forces of production that like industry wouldn't have been able to continue to develop the way that it did if we still had feudalism and this is why we have capitalism right like like is that do explanations of that kind make sense or like Uh, the, I think the kind of example that, that Lillian was criticizing would be stuff like, uh, like when sometimes Marxists will like explain some social phenomenon by saying it's like, oh, well, here's how, whatever it is, racism, you know, serves the interests of capitalism. So like, that's why it exists. And there are all sorts of reasons why you might be really unsatisfied (laughs) with explanations of that kind. Uh, and, and I think, um. So, so I, I think there are really two issues, right? Like, what one is, are functional explanations kind of generally okay, right? That's a sort of abstract philosophical issue, and then another one is, are these particular kinds of functional explanations plausible? And then, like, a third issue would be like, how do we figure out, you know, whether they're plausible or not, right? So, uh, just a really quick. Can I ask? A, can I ask
2: you a question here, Ben? Yeah, yeah please. I don't. I don't, I yep. don't know the. Um, yep, yep. I don't know this very well. Is, yeah. So, is, is functionalism? Uh, are you taking a? Are you doing a functional analysis? Analysis? Anytime you you're doing something, you're, you're talking about like the intentional states of the classes. Is that the idea? Like, yeah. if you're talking about the the desires of of one class or another, and they're re- explaining what's happening in society in terms of what what those classes wanted.
0: Well, maybe. So, so, uh, so I think. Uh so okay, so I think that like like Marxist functional explanations, and one of Cohen's big claims is that a lot of classical Marxist claims only make sense if you think of those functional explanations, are explanations of the form such and such happens because it serves such and such like. Function for something. I know that's not helpful at all. Let me see if I can rephrase that to make it clear. Right, like, uh, like what if the like, like just take like a basic like take something that isn't even necessarily a particularly Marxist claim. All the, you know, but like uh, that uh, you tend like industry <clears throat> tends to uh, start producing at a higher volume because of the economies of scale. Right, like so so uh this is one of the examples Cohen talks about. Like you start to get larger factories because of economies of scale. And um and one of the so in other words, because of like the benefits that having larger factories bring, and you can have explanations of this form that are like that. You can have explanations that are of this form that have to do like I think you're asking about about like class interests, right? That they, they that like you know the uh, like if somebody says like you don't get a lot of radical leftists on mainstream media because that wouldn't serve the interests of the the owners of mainstream media right like that's a that kind of functional explanation uh, and and like one on just like a really abstract philosophical level one problem some sometimes people have with functional explanations is that it seems like there's a the wrong way around that you're like explaining the cause by talking about the effect yeah right. and, and um and I think that so so one of the one of like I think the most the best things Cohen could do to make this plausible is to compare, is to say that well uh, evolutionary explanations are a kind of functional explanation right like you say like this this animal has such and such feature because you know it helps it survive in this environment and of course uh, there's a particular way that like Darwinism fills out that explanation. And so and some people would say, well, okay, the functional explanation is just kind of like a very rough way of gesturing at the real explanation. But Cohen's position is, well, the Darwinian functional explanation that's like just a particular sort of details of how it is that you get from the function to the thing, right? That they like if Lamarckianism were true, the same uh so, you know, the whatever, the draft strain into you know, straining their necks to, to get up to the high trees to eat over, you know, generations is what caused <clears throat> the, the necks to be that long. Uh then that would be a very different uh explanation of the mechanism, but like at the right level of generality, no matter which of those was true, the the functional explanation of why the draft's necks were so long would still would still be true. And you know, so so I think I think you'd say that it's it's not um you know you have to for it to be a correct functional explanation it has to be that you know you're not saying that this is such and such a way because it it will have these effects in the future because then you really are appealing to some kind of spooky backwards causation you're saying like this has this feature because in an ongoing way that's already come up you know it it has this it has this functional role uh, and so you can imagine sociological equivalents of that. Like you could have like a, a pretty direct for like the factory case, right? You might have a very direct explanation that like uh, like a very direct analog to something like an evolutionary explanation that like it could be that like wise managers realized that the larger factories would have these economies of scale or it could be that it just happened by happenstance. But the ones that expanded survived in competition, whereas the ones that didn't didn't. Um, so, so that's like kind of the general issue, but I, I think the, I think to get a little bit closer to the nub of what I was talking about with Lillian, I think, I think a more specific issue is like how satisfied, like how reasonable is it to believe something based like to believe a functional explanation under circumstances where you don't know or don't yet know what the underlying mechanism is. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, that make, that makes sense. So there, there, there's a there's this kind of um, background suspicion of a teleological approach to explaining something,
0: uh-huh.
2: because you want to make sure that whatever it is that has a function, whatever high-level abstraction has some, whatever function or desire or whatever it has, that that's actually being supported by the actual intentions and goals of individual human beings. Is that
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that is a lot of, I think that is a lot of what the debate ends up being about, right, sort of uh, methodological individualism that, you know, you should be, like, I think this is a lot of what Lillian was pushing in that conversation, that, like, you should be able to explain, um, you know, or at least you should be reasonably confident that you're going to be able to, at some point in the future, fill out the details of this in some way that explains why it is that particular people would be motivated to act in particular ways? Because, um, like the fact that something like serves the perpetuation of an economic system or whatever, doesn't necessarily by itself tell you why, you know, all the particular people who would have to act in particular ways in order for this to happen would, you know, would be motivated to do that. I think something like that would be would be the worry whereas somebody like Cohen who's more comfortable with um accepting functional explanations at least provisionally until like uh you know and even Cohen I don't know if I mean he might say look if you've like if you've like embraced this research program and then 20 years later you still can't fill in any details you know maybe you should you know even even he might say like maybe you should start to you know think about getting a new research program then but like um But I think like his line about this is that uh, even if having a functional explanation of something doesn't answer all of your, you know, it it doesn't like answer all the reasonable questions that you would have about like about it, at least it answers some of them. And it points research about the others in the right direction. Something like that, I think, would be his, you know, his defense of it. And I'm actually not 100 percent sure what I think about this one way or the other
2: that's super helpful actually because that's a i'm not I'm not a marxist scholar you know i'm 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 sort of a lefty guy who when I hear these kinds of analyses i' I've, mm-hmm. I've always had a, um, a sort of background skepticism about them and this actually mm-hmm. this is this actually nicely puts the finger on on like what where my skepticism is that it does it does sometimes sometimes those analyses feel suspiciously metaphysical like (laughs) as as if these class interests or or institutional urges were some sort of um, some sort of magical thing that that emerges from social interactions. and and I'm suspicious of that so that 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 helps Michael I don't know if we did we um, did we get off topic or we just um... no I think you're
3: you're I think you're right on topic I'm I am having a little bit of trouble processing I think Lillian's position, and I stress that this is only from hearing this conversationally. That's something I put a bookmark in and I'm like, I'm going to go back and, and read that after probably I read Cohen, honestly. Um, but, you know, I mean, to, so it sounds to me like what, what Cohen has said is, is something close to maybe, you know, where my mind goes a fair amount. Um, you know, I kind of think about this, like, Oh, did you guys lose me?
0: Oh no, no, no! I'm, I'm, no, still I'm here. Sorry. I, just, I just muted myself while you were talking. Oh, gotcha.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think about this uh, sometimes. Uh, this is just one example, like when we talk about like uh, the the you know describing people as Karens or something like that. You know, to me, I uh, I think about that whole phenomenon of the of the you know uh, demanding consumer uh, who you know, wants everything brought to them, you know, on a silver platter and, you know, demands that out of the economy. To me, that has uh, a certain resonance with that person's position, you know, like in the global supply chain. Um, and so I think I have sort of a background, you know, functionalist bias there. Um, but, you know, I would certainly agree that you'd have to fill that out and you can't just like kind of Go through life, uh, you know, just explaining everything, uh, um, you know, with relation to to that map. But I, but I, I do think there's a certain percentage of things that happen uh, that you know is related to this global system of production that we have, you know. And I think oh, it comes right yeah. down to your neighborhood. So,
0: yeah, no question. I mean, I, I think that. I mean, I think, look, do lots of things happen uh, that are explicable in terms of of economic interest? Absolutely, right? I mean, like, like I, and, you know, whatever. I mean, I would, I would say it's like what's the, you know, I think Doug Henwood says, like, you know, uh, about 95% of everything is explicable through vulgar Marxism, you know, in other words, from, like, <laughs> through, through like sort of really, really crass, simplistic explanations of economic interests. You know, that's like clearly right. not completely accurate, but man, it explains a lot. Uh, yeah. But 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 I think that the sort of uh, skepticism that Lillian was expressing and and kind of what Mark was expressing, like having kind of instinctively, is probably a sort of healthy counterweight to some of this, which is just to say yeah, for sure. Lots of things happen through economic interest, but also like we know what some specific ways in which economic interest can translate into things happening are. And and if you're going to make claims like this, there's something healthy about saying, like, just to keep us honest, right, methodologically to be like, okay, but like what's the mechanism by which economic interest translate into this thing happening, right? Because like there are a bunch of them, right? Like, I mean, uh one is uh is class interests I think oftentimes just manifest as just individual interests, right? Like like yeah. like you like you as a business owner are going to make more money if you stop your employees from forming a union or whatever. Like that's a you know, you don't need to there's no mystery whatsoever about how that would translate into individual motivation. Uh sometimes they sometimes it translates into action because of a like a sense of, of like conscious collective interest, right? You know, like like what Marx would call, you know, having a class for itself, not just a class in itself. Like so one of the points Lily made, possibly the conversation you're thinking of, is I think oftentimes uh people this goes back to actually kind of what we were talking about at the end of yesterday about conspiracy theories. Like I think sometimes Marxists uh overreact To are sort of overly defensive about the idea that what they're saying might sound like a conspiracy theory, and they said, no, 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 I'm not saying there's a bunch of guys in a back room, you know, smoking, you know, smoking cigars and hatching things out. But like, actually, back rooms do exist, right? You know, like (laughs) sometimes, sometimes that's literally true, right? I mean, like if there's like a big strike wave or whatever, like historically you'll get like manufacturers associations or employers associations or whatever that literally are meeting rooms and plotting out, you know, ruling class strategy for responding to it. And that's a thing that really happens. But I think what gets more, what gets trickier is when it's not conscious individual interest or conscious collective interest, but you're still saying that these interests manifest in what happens, then what's the mechanism? And and I think sometimes there is one but i think we need to be a little careful about it because i think i think i think the less you feel obligated to fill out those details the more likely it is that you are that you're going to slide into saying something that's just like bullshit that sounds like has a sort of marxist padna to it but like doesn't really like like you can't really reasonably defend you know so i think that like because certainly there is a yeah, least, yeah. Yeah,
3: please. I think I think that's totally understandable. I think there's a real practical application to that, in the in the sense that, like, um, you know, when you're talking about the real conspiracies that exist, uh, uh, it it's not it's not all at the level of Jeff Bezos. I mean, it could be at the level of like a product manager who's decided, you know, that the way that this product is going to survive in the marketplace is to, you know, puff up oh, I don't know, you know, conceal some safety issue or something, you know? Um, And that's a real conspiracy, and it could be thought of that way. Um, But then there's, like, the level of, like, you know, and I think actually this kind of connects to canceling in some ways. Like, let's say, you know, going back to the Karen example, right? Let's say some guys, like, you know, after – um, you know, a number of months of the pandemic is just fed up and he's finally going out to get his burger at some fast food restaurant and there aren't enough employees. It's taking too long. And he just like throws a fit. Um, you know, like the vulgar explanation would be like this, this person is kind of like asserting his class interests or, or you know, or that it's a reflection of that. But to this guy, I mean, there's absolutely no connection to that at all. There's just, the fact that he's always been able to get a burger and (laughs) you know, uh, and this time he's pissed off that, you know, that it's not coming. And if you just go in there saying that this guy's, you know, like oppressing everyone, it's not going to sound that persuasive to people who go through the world, you know, just day to day leading their lives. So, I mean, I think, I think this issue is alive in all of our debates.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, but. so, so, so I, I guess I would just say like, I mean, I guess that example, um, I mean, of course that's not even like really class interest. That's just like, you know, getting a burger interest, right? I mean, like you could, you know, you could yourself have a working class job and still be pissed off that you couldn't get your burger. Maybe you'd be less likely to psychologically. Uh, but, um, but, I, but I guess I'd say like, okay, So their class interest could translate to behavior because people correctly realize that something is in their individual interest. Class interest could translate to behavior because people can, like, sort of realize that they're part of a group that has a collective interest in something that happens all the time. Uh, And I think there is a way that class interest could translate to behavior uh, without it being, without, like... Awareness, but I think, I think that plausibly, it that would have to be like I think like the the most obvious way that could happen is like some analog to, like economic analog to natural selection, like you, um, you know, like if your, uh, class interest trans you know translates into uh, into behavior in the sense that, uh, people who I don't know, employers who who don't treat their employees in a certain way might go out of business, or maybe even on a national level, like uh, you know, like 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 maybe even like entire like ruling classes that don't act some way, like just won't. Think about
2: Chomsky's out. explanation of uh, media figures.
0: Uh huh.
2: Right, Chomsky. Th- Chomsky says that like the, the, a lot of people who are powerful in in um, in the in news, in popular, in mass media. They have all of these commitments that are that support the ruling class, but a lot of them, maybe most of them, um, e- even if you give them the truth serum, they they wouldn't they wouldn't say that they reported on this in this particular way because they wanted to help the ruling class. It's just there's an evolutionary explanation. They wouldn't be there if they didn't already have a disposition to um, to back the status quo.
0: Yes, they wouldn't mm-hmm. you- have. You know, you, would, you wouldn't be hired for those positions in the first place if you didn't seem to have certain general attitudes because they would, you know, because the people who'd be in re- responsible for hiring or promoting you would just think of you as a crazy person. And, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think a lot of that's true. I think that's another way that you can have this kind of analog evolutionary explanation. So I, I think there are a fair number of causal routes between class interests and and outcomes uh but i i guess i would just say like where i do see like where i do see a very reasonable kernel in lillian suspicion of some of this stuff is just that um is just that like if you don't aren't at least keeping a ha- half an eye on the question of like okay but could I actually explain what that causal route is in this instance you know like the the less you're thinking about that like the more likely you are to just sort of spout off stuff that sounds superficially plausible because you've um, because like you can say oh this serves such and such a you know function for the system without actually you know. Like, like, because I think you could save that probably for a lot of things where there really isn't a route, like a cause and effect route, between that and it happening. And I think sometimes Marxists do say stuff like that where there, where, where it probably just isn't really true, or or it might be true that it serves that function, but that's not really why it happens. So uh, a lot of times it is why it happens, but you know, there's probably something to be said methodologically for like, you know, at least not been too promiscuous about making claims like that without at least having some idea of what kind of like causal mechanism you're postulating.
2: Michael's uh, example of the Karen thing actually made me think of um, critical race theory mm-hmm. because I mean, so I, I, and this is, this is your field, Ben, or your interest here, but I know that you've expressed some skepticism about critical race theory in the past. And I wonder if some mm-hmm. of your skepticism about critical race theory it is is along the same sort of it's the same kind of skepticism that it's, there's this weird sort of reification going on of the of the abstract property.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that's right. So, uh, I, and I mean, man, there's a lot, okay, there's a lot that I think could be said about the critical race theory stuff. Uh, this is something spent a fair amount of time talking and thinking about, like. Uh, and and by the way, part of what makes all of this funny is that like, you know, I I have the I think you know, fairly common progressive position that like, any connection between anything that's actually being taught like K twelve and critical race theory is pretty tenuous and and you know, you know maybe like is more like common ancestry than you know that that actual influence uh, directly in most cases. And also, if critical race theory genuinely was being routinely taught in high school classrooms, like if if like high school teachers were routinely assigning Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, I'd be totally cool with that. I wouldn't mind. Like like I I mean I I think some of it would be wrong, but whatever. I think lots of stuff that's assigned in classrooms is wrong, and these would at least be interesting discussions. Um, probably you know probably none of it would make my like top twenty list of the stuff I disagree with most that's taught in classrooms. If it was. <laughs> uh and um and also i i and i actually also do think like you know one of my big complaints about a lot of progressive pushback to this is i think people are doing it wrong that they that like the focus is is um you know the focus is so much on saying that people backing these laws are racist which you know may you know may be true in many cases but i don't think it's really the most politically salient truth i think that like the more productive thing to focus on is that like uh, is is the free speech defense right? that we should just be able to have open discussion of controversial ideas and not, you know, and not try to like, you know, be so scared of them that we're like empowering bureaucrats to peer over the shoulders of classroom teachers to see if anything that they're saying sounds like it's too close to this. But yeah, as far as the actual theory itself, yeah, I'm a little critical of some of that. And yeah, I I think there is probably some analogy there. Uh, because, because I think that, I think there's like a, like actual critical race theory, not what people imagine it is, but like the actual thing, I think starts from the correct insight that just having legal racial equality doesn't eliminate the existence of racial disparities. And that's just, you know, clearly true. I think that the, but I think that like, oftentimes the further explanation that you get, um, is one that I find really unhelpful because, you know, I mean, I basically agree with people like Adolph and toure Reed and Cedric Johnson, all those people that like um like I think a lot of the ways that we talk about race are really confused. Like like a yeah, I guess this is what you're saying with reification, you know, that like we that we use the word race as if we were clearly referring to some kind of entity with causal powers that like I think I I, I think it's just really confused. Like I think a lot of times like the word race is actually a way of saying racism. Uh, And, and then, um, but then like, I think that word too is used in really confused ways, right? Is what we mean by that, like racial prejudice uh, or like the combination of people acting on conscious or subconscious racial prejudice with beta positions of power, which is certainly a thing that happens, but I don't actually think that's the main cause of racial disparities. I think the main cause of racial disparities is just that, uh, you know, like—and the most important racial disparities, right, is um, a lot of times people talk about the racial wealth gap, but that's—but, like, the great majority of the racial wealth gap is at the very top of society. But, like, I think think what's relevant to most of the racial disparities that people are talking about— uh in you know incarceration and in and, you know, health outcomes and in tons of other things is mostly just the unequal distribution of poverty and i think the unequal distribution of poverty isn't primarily due to racial prejudices by people in continuing positions of power although that's some of it. i think it's mostly just a function of the fact that for you know like poverty tends to be still intergenerationally self-perpetuated you know all else being equal and like the fact that America was like a an apartheid country until a generation ago, like means, of course, that poverty is unequally distributed. Um, but but I think that they sort of saying that like white supremacy, per se, this like very fuzzily defined way, is what caused that, is kind of politically unhelpful uh, because I think it obscures what would actually do something about it, because. You know just having like really really rigorous non-discrimination affirmative action all that stuff all of which i support doesn't actually get to the core of that issue because that's not going to help most people who are dealing with those circumstances that helps some people rise to the top uh michael do you have any other thoughts about this
3: um no i, I don't i don't think so at this point i mean you know uh i i have uh something i've uh uh you know thought about the the rolling stones kind of in this context uh but uh, oh yeah yeah okay. Know, okay, we'll uh, we'll yeah okay well it's real quick i'm a huge stones fan um yeah. so i'm re- on the recent tour i was very sad to see charlie go but steve jordan is in the family enough that it was still a pretty cool show i thought mm-hmm. <clears throat> um but you know i mean you know sometimes you know when you get into like Discussions of like cultural appropriation or things like that. You know, people will talk about the you know the '60s British invasion is kind of um, you know um, you know being at some, at some level racist because it was you know pulling from this black form of music. And I, I think in some ways, you know, it's kind of it's kind of hard to to argue um, that at some level that's not um, the case. But I think I think it gets kind of Interesting. Well, I mean, the way I think about that is like that, um, you know, the, the, the wealth that was generated by, um, those, those sixties bands was in some ways a reflection of, of, uh, of the, the, the racial politics of the time, but wasn't necessarily, um, you know, intentional, uh, for the, the, you know, the, the people were producing that music because at, at the time there was all this kind of exchange across, you know, racial lines in, in the 60s, especially, you know, I mean, I think, I, I think I'm rambling at this point, but. Uh,
2: <laughs> uh, no, that question uh, of uh, cultural appropriation is a really interesting one, yeah. uh, Michael. Do, do you think that the Stones were perpetuating
3: uh, a racial injustice? Uh, so what I, I I guess the way I think about it is that I think that maybe um, they benefited from that but not this but I think that you know for them as artists uh, I think it's obvious that they were genuine blues artists um, and I would consider them to be you know a real um, you know push forward in terms of the the art that they that they were incorporating and I, and I, and I guess I'm pretty uncomfortable with this. I would want to separate cultural exchange, which I think is defensible and good um, from the fact that, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe the fact that they were white boys playing the blues at this exact moment in time was kind of a gimmick that allowed them to, <laughs> you know, produce uh, a, a certain level of notoriety that that maybe wasn't available to the artists that they were... Um, you know, influenced by. So uh, that's kind of how I would square those two things together. But, um, so, you know, I would say they're genuine blues artists, but, you know, maybe the, you know, the structure of the record industry that was, that came up around them allowed them to benefit more than, uh, than the people they were influenced by.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I would... Um, I'm not I'm not crazy about cultural appropriation as a concept like I think I mean I think some of what people are talking about when they talk about like the Stones or Zeppelin or whoever doing cultural appropriation is something that's objectionable but it's it's like just like individual appropriation right like not giving particular artists you know like uh you know credit and money you know for 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 like songs they were using or whatever like that's that's like a that's bad right yeah uh but i mean i think i mean one of my issues with the concept of cultural appropriation is that it, sort of suggest this weird sense of collective intellectual property that I'm not sure I buy and I also worry that like at least the more extreme versions of cultural appropriation worries like I mean it it shaded to this kind of woke segregationism where like as white people you should only enjoy white things and you know only (laughs) only make white styles of music and whatever that like um, sort of crosses the event horizon into something else but Um, I mean, I think in that context that you're talking about, I think there is something that's troubling about the combination of like, uh, of, of white people being able to make lots of money, uh, you know, like doing this version of blues music that, um, you know, especially if we're talking about like, uh, you know, added and like black people, um, you know, in fact, some of the very same black people who might have influenced them not been able to make all this money off of it. Like, I think that combination is troubling for sure. Like, I mean, the sort of classic thing is like in the fifties, whatever. There's some quote about like how you know uh, Elvis can go like sing, you know, Blind Willie McTell's music at a club that wouldn't allow, that wouldn't even let Blind Willie in, mm-hmm. um, and and that's for sure bad right but like i guess i guess i guess one of my worries about cultural appropriation talk is that it might locate the source of the badness in the wrong place right like that that in other words um the you know the the unjust thing about this would be black people not being able to to be successful in all of this due to whatever barriers like not like white people being able to and and i could and I could I' like maybe that's what you mean when you say that they they might have been beneficiaries of an injustice here, because like certainly, if you're able to do something that other people aren't, you know that like helps you competitively but um but but, I mean, I think focusing on the cultural appropriation like I don't know that we would have been living in a more just world if there were all the same you know whatever barriers there were in an early reported history. Either actual segregation, like the Elvis, Blind Willie example, or just access to certain kinds of connections or industry or whatever. I don't know if we yeah. would be living in a more just world if uh, you know Elvis or the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin or whoever had just like refused to to like make music of that kind because they thought it was cultural appropriation.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I I'm very skeptical of this idea of you know. There's white music, there's black music, there's, you know, I, I think that there are, yeah, sure. You know, like cultural backgrounds, cultural endowments, those kinds of things. Um, but, but when you get to, you know, being influenced by things, I think that, you know, you take what, what is around you in the world and, uh, you know, creative people really, um, are able to filter down, you know, a tremendous number of things into their work um and i think that that is one of the the wonders of it um so yeah i i i, I agree with what you're saying and uh boy you've given me a lot of time and i really uh this has been a great conversation so right. hopefully i uh this call has uh pushed the <laughs> ball forward a little bit for you
0: all right thanks michael oh all right uh Ryan, I feel like I haven't heard from you in a while.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, this is this stuff is all <laughs> way outside my expertise. So I, I was just getting a lot from listening to the conversation. Um, back to the original functionalist stuff, especially because i i i I tend to have a lot of like very vague skeptical concerns whenever I hear mm-hmm. those kinds of functionalist explanations. So this. Uh, Helped me get a handle on some of it. And also, the analogy with evolution is really good because I have similar worries a lot of the times, Um, even when we do know what the mechanism is supposed to be. Like, when you hear kind of like in evolutionary psychology, especially, like a lot Uh. of the worst stuff there is like, well, here's a story about how it could work, and they can even tell you what the mechanism should be. Um, But they don't, like, there's not much evidence. And so, I think, yeah, I think in both cases, we like you were saying we want to be careful to a at least have a handle on what the mechanism would be but also even beyond that like maybe you know take a step to look and see if there's any evidence for the particular explanation that might resonate with your worldview yeah i mean
0: i'm less hesitant about this because because my ancestors were uh you know were had, like, more alpha genes about, like, how they they approach theoretical theoretical disputes, you know. That's right, that's
2: right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think all of those are good worries to have. I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's also, I mean, I will also say in general, I think that, like, we don't want to pick on functional explanations too much, because I think social science explanations in general are probably not going to um like i think it might be inevitable that they're a little bit fuzzier than like natural science explanations just because the difference between the subjects but like you know obviously you should try your best you know to uh to you know to, to honor like higher higher level you know higher thresholds of of evidence and you know it, it's not even totally it's not always it's not always totally clear to me you know um what the right standards are for for evaluating claims like this?
1: Yeah, it's it's not super clear to me in some cases either. But I mean, at least, yeah, well, like you were saying, at least be able to say what the mechanism would be by which these these causal claims are happening. Um, yeah,
0: at the, yeah, at the at the very least, you should have some ideas <laughs> on that, and, at the, and, and 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 you know, obviously, it's better if you have some evidence you know, that these these claims yeah. that like. These mechanisms are actually um, are actually are actually played out. Like, I mean, I, th- I think, I think maybe it's a discussion where you pretty quickly get into some deep kind of waters about philosophy of science, about like how, uh, like kind of inference to the best explanation, like how much mm-hmm. is the standard, just that like this is a more plausible explanation than the alternative ones you can think of and like how much should we just not be satisfied with that and say no I don't care what other explanations you can think of how much evidence do you have for this mm-hmm. yeah
1: it's
2: interesting because this, this conversation is one that like it's, it feels like a lot of this is just a conversation about how much we're going to accept higher order explanations for phenomena and uh-huh. that's, that's a problem everywhere Right, like yeah. um, when you're when you're explaining what a person does in terms of their beliefs and their desires, you're giving an mm-hmm. explanation in terms of higher order phenomena. Um, when you're yeah. expla- explaining the uh, economic issues, that's you're, what's happening to the economy. You're, you're, you're doing that. When you're explaining weather patterns, you're doing that. Um, mm-hmm. it, and, but it, but it seems like that the lesson, that kind of skeptical lesson that whatever whatever kind of higher order explanation you're giving you better make sure that you can give at least a plausible um, translation of that explanation in terms of lower order phenomena. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. seems like a pretty good uh, constraint to keep in mind lest you slip off into mysticism.
1: Yeah. Maybe the real lesson here is that for all of these domains, we should only accept explanations in terms of atoms and (laughs) physical forces. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, if you, um, you know, if if you say that uh, that Hillary Clinton uh, lost the 2016 election because she didn't campaign in Wisconsin, I should demand that you be able to cash that out in terms of an explanation about quantum particles, because like that's, that's right, f- fundamental level of reality. <laughs> That's what's going on, and like I don't know, yeah. I don't know what you yeah. are talking about. With you know, like, like, like I mean, are, are we just supposed to believe in these folk categories about like Wisconsin? Well, I mean, you know, right, right, off, right, you know, right yeah. off the
2: bat, we need to restructure the, the phenomena to be explained. It's why did the the particles arranged Hillary wise lose the uh, event arranged election wise. Yeah.
1: <laughs> It was, yeah, it was, it was because of what was going on, in those particles arranged Wisconsin-wise.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. This is uh, people have no idea we're talking about this. Uh, there's a there's a certain kind of um, weird debate that happens in uh, analytic philosophy, metaphysics about um, whether, like, whether strictly speaking, tables and chairs exist, or whether, like, really. Since all that really exists are like quantum particles, you know, like when we'd say, you know, here's a table, what we really mean is here's a bunch of quantum particles arranged table wise. And if you're listening to this and thinking, you know, um, what's the difference between a table that's made of quantum particles and a bunch of quantum particles that are arranged table wise, and if there is a difference, why should anybody spend 30 seconds of their lives thinking about it? Uh, I think those are correct questions to have. I I, I think that like you know I, I I can't I can't justify it. Right? I'm interested in a lot of really esoteric philosophy issues, but I have a very strong intuition that this one's a waste of time. Philistine. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Fair
1: enough.
0: <Yeah>. Uh. <laughs> All right. This was a lot of fun. We should probably call it a day for uh, for right now, but uh, we should do this again.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: that was really fun. Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. All right. All right. Yeah, thanks guys. Hey, thanks, Ma- thanks, Michael
1: for. Uh, yeah, thanks, for for Michael. That, that was all. great. Yeah, yeah, I, I got a lot out of that discussion. So yeah, All right. see you guys.
2: Cheers.